If you're addicted to love, get ready to binge your heart out on Discovery Plus. Stream exclusive originals or classics like The Bachelor. Plus, you can explore the entire 90-day universe, from the original series to new favorites like The Single Life. With Discovery Plus, you can get all the yeses, all the dresses, and all the hot messes for just $4.99. Discovery Plus is the streaming home of relationships, plus so much more. Start your free trial today. Welcome to How We Win. All over the country, people are doing extraordinary things, and we're giving you the tools that you need to make a difference right now. The best antidote to anxiety is action. We've won some battles, but we still have more work to do. Of course, the work of a citizen never ends. Joining us today is the co-founder and executive director of Run For Something, Amanda Littman. If you haven't heard yet, we are the change we seek, and down-ballot races are where it's at. We talk about how Run For Something is recruiting and training our next generation of leaders. Spoiler alert, that's you. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And And this this is How how We we Win. Win. Supreme Court just blocked another lawsuit just from Trump. It just literally popped on my screen as we're recording this. Oh, wow. All they do is lose, lose, lose no matter what. (laughs) That's right. 50 lawsuits now. I do think it's a record. 50 lawsuits. So frivolous and and wasteful and uh, stupid. You know, I I don't think that any of the this um, bizarre group of attorneys that have amassed around Trump or Trump himself really think that they're going to win any of this. What they're doing is they're giving his followers more ammunition so that they can make the next four years as difficult as possible for the Biden administration and Democratic-led House and, fingers crossed, Democratic-led Senate. Yeah. It's also just a massive grift for his followers, just donating money straight to Trump's pocket, you know, in this, in the guise of some election defense fund. It's People have donated millions to this effort. Um, These are victimized cult members. I'm going to, I'm going to put it nicely there because once again, if, if they were, if your family member was in a cult and giving all their money to that cult, uh, you would not vilify them. You would want to help them. You would want to get them out of that cult. And I don't know how we pull them out of the cult. Uh, I don't think we do right now. I think we do it by um, getting this behind us, finally having Republicans uh, acknowledging Biden, which is happening more and more as the president-elect, and uh, January 20th having a transfer of power, and then get to the work of making people's lives better, all people, all Americans' lives better. That's how we uh, win hearts and minds, is by helping them with their kitchen table issues so that they, their lives are better. Yeah. So um, the lawsuit losses continued to pile up. And on um, Monday, December 14th, um, the Electoral College is casting its votes. Um, So it will be no turning back from that point. But I'm sure still plenty of, you know, chances that Trump will take advantage of to cast out. He's still hoping that uh, Amy Comey Barrett is going to 
save the day for him in some way, shape, or form, but it's not going to happen. Yeah. But let's stay on our, like, let's, let's not, let's not let our guards down. No. We, this, this, you know, this has been a year where making a prediction is a fool's errand. So we've been, we've been right about everything though. Just to, just to let the record show the How We Win podcast has been 100% correct. (laughs) I didn't even know we were making predictions. No, we don't. <laughs> we don't. We just talk to cool people and, and learn from them pretty much. <laughs> we do talk to very smart people who have said some very smart things that have certainly come to pass. Doesn't it feel good, everybody, like being in the know with the people who are right? I'm not talking about us. I'm talking about us. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, speaking of which, we had a great letter writing party with um, Sarah Kinzier and Andrea Chalupa of the Gaslit Nation podcast to write letters for Georgia. Uh, it was so awesome and so interesting. I had a great conversation with them. Speaking of people who have been right for a long time, saying things that people don't want to hear, they're awesome. Excellent. Thank you to everybody who took the time to to keep writing those letters. We know that before the election, everyone sent millions and millions of millions of letters and it made a difference. So I'm looking forward to seeing next month what a big difference it makes in Georgia. Yeah. Which um, voter registration in Georgia has closed now. Early voting starts on early in-person voting begins on Monday. Now is the time to, um, if you haven't yet, turn your energy to the beach state. That's right. Big day on Monday. Bad bad day for Trump on Monday and a good day for organizers in Georgia who know that this is all about turnout right now. It's about getting people to show up early and vote. So, um, yeah, Monday the 14th. It's exciting. So I spent part of my childhood in Atlanta and I still have an Atlanta area code for my phone number. Cause I just never changed my cell phone number for like the last, Oh my God. So long. <laughs> oh, that's what that area <laughs> code years. is. Okay. Yeah. So it's a four Oh four number. I'm getting texts constantly. I don't know how <laughs> these folks got my phone number, but let me tell you, I'm getting texts constantly from all kinds of organizations, organizers wanting to make sure that I register to vote. Now, uh, clearly the the voter file in Georgia is very outdated. But <laughs> well, I just want people to know that the organizers are hard at work there and people are getting the messages. Love to see it. And as you know, um, even if the voter files update and the campaign is using the most updated voter file, uh, a lot of other organizations are grabbing every 404 area code they they can find Mm -hmm. and reaching out to them. um, And they may not have the most up-to-date information. So thank you for your patience with all the texting, Mariah. I'm glad to hear that. Um, I'm glad to hear they're not leaving a stone unturned. You know what? Whenever somebody calls or texts me, I am so chill about it because <laughs> I've spent so much time on the other side. Right. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the more of us volunteer, the better all of this gets. <laughs> yeah. You can't really be mad at people doing that. I'm always I'm always. No, thinking, I love it. Yeah. I love hearing from volunteers. Well, Georgia is on everyone's mind, and that's going to be our call to action. Before we talk about that, I just want to acknowledge, because we haven't talked about it 
in a bit, mm-hmm. but um, we have surpassed 15 million coronavirus cases. Hospitalizations mm-hmm. have now topped 100,000 nationwide. Cities like ours here in Los Angeles um, are are shutting down again. It is a very dangerous time. I just want to acknowledge people who are continuing to be affected by this. There's, um, I mean, my reason for hope really is the the vaccine once again and the vaccine for being distributed. It's exciting. Pfizer just got an A plus from the FDA in the UK. They are already ad- administering it, um, so we're starting to see the vaccine get out there. But what is going to slow down this? enormous spread of the coronavirus right now is by us staying home when possible, social distancing, always wearing masks, washing our hands, doing the things that I know all of our listeners do, but it's it's difficult when we're so fatigued over all this and, and the holidays are here. So I just want to wish everyone the best as this surge rolls into the holidays. Yeah, you know, my reason for hope is related to that. And um, the timing of this surge is is particularly terrible. But what I'm seeing in my community, both in person and online, is um, people being open to asking for help. Mm -hmm. And many, 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 many people being open to providing that help, really wanting to, for, for those who are able to help this year, really stepping up, whether it is um, shopping locally at a small business, adopting a family for the holidays that, you know, where folks have lost their job, finding creative ways to um, supplement their income and, and, you know, community members stepping up In, in my neighborhood, there are people, you know, selling iced coffee by the gallon and making special holiday desserts. And, you know, everyone in the neighborhood is doing their best to buy from them. Um, So I really appreciate hearing from people who are helping and also people who, who need help and would just encourage folks who, who are in either boat to, to reach out um, to me or someone in their community and let us know what's going on so we can all try to stay connected during this time. That's great. That that is hopeful and uh and really wonderful thing to put out there. Let's all help each other out and uh wear your ugly sweaters on your Zoom meetings too. <laughs> <laughs> great idea. So that's number 1 on the to-do list. Uh wear your ugly sweaters on Zoom uh holiday meetings. <laughs> of course, uh we mentioned it already. It's Georgia, Georgia, Georgia. Uh, if I sound can't mention it enough, so important. Yeah, go to the Flip Georgia page, sign up for a phone bank, call Mariah over and over again. Make sure she's uh, registered. <laughs> uh, text her a whole bunch of times, um, and anyone else with the four hundred four area code. Now I'm kidding, of course. But um, hook up with the campaigns. We have all the links for phone banks. We're doing some. Um, Relational organizing uh, with reach, which is really uh, very cool, very cool and exciting. Um, there are groups on the ground who still need your money. If you're able to donate, uh, the same groups like uh, Fair Fight and New Georgia Project and Black Voters Matter, um, who have been doing this work for the last decade and um, and know where that money is going to go to the best use. So, don't wait. Um. 
Another item on the to-do list that you put on that I'm so grateful for is a reminder that open enrollment closes in one week on December 15th. Um, So if you need healthcare coverage for 2021, make sure you get that done. There's, you know, the, the Trump administration for the last four years has intentionally not promoted when open enrollment is happening because they don't want people to sign up for it. Right. Um, so get your health care, resist, sign up for for your, your coverage at healthcare.gov. Can you imagine? Or in your state marketplace. Yes. I mean, can you imagine a administration during a, a pandemic that doesn't want you to sign up for health care that they offer? It's just... Yeah, I can. It's it's uh, the evil evil folks that we have now. The the same people who are stopping the stimulus and rejected um, millions of doses of the vaccine from Pfizer. And yeah, right. I'm not like I'm at this point. Are we surprised? No. Well, let's get those Senate seats. Darn it, let's get those Senate seats and make some real change in our government. Yeah, definitely. Speaking of making real change in our government and what we've seen from uh, the coronavirus and uh, and issues of racial justice and the Black Lives Matter movement is how important local offices are. I think everyone mm-hmm. is, is way more aware of that, especially in the absence of any uh, federal response. And uh, Amanda Littman is so great and, and really talks about Run for Something and all the great opportunities there are for you listener right now to get involved and run for office yes you too mariah you definitely should run for office we saw an influx in 2018 of folks who got activated by the 2016 election let's keep that going yes and it is going actually Uh, amanda had some really cool news to share about that as well so i can't wait for you all to hear the interview Amanda Littman is the co-founder and executive director of Run For Something, an organization that helps recruit and support young progressives running for down-ballot office. She was email director for Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign, digital director for Charlie Crist's 2014 Florida gubernatorial campaign, and was one of the first employees at Organizing for Action as deputy email director. She also wrote the book, Don't Just March, Run for Something, a real talk guide to fixing the system yourself, and of course is the host of Run for Something, the podcast. A lot of stuff there. Amanda, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. When you um, describe it like that, I really sound like I'm running a a run for something media empire, which is not bad. (laughs) You are. You are a one woman media empire. Uh, I love that. I actually think that um, all of the organizations, even though we're not media organizations, really need to use our collective power to uh, to take uh, these important conversations into the media landscape because it is so dominated by conservative voices right now. So. Um, I'm really glad you're doing the podcast. It's really fun. And I'm really glad that it's another platform to get to share our candidate stories. You know, the best part has been hearing from people, um, listeners who are like, I would vote for her if I could. Like, is she going to run for president one day? Mm. And about any number of the guests that we've had so far, which is really cool. That's awesome. 
So a lot to talk about, um, about your candidates and, and the work that you've been doing, but I want to just hear a little bit of your origin story first. How did you get your start as an organizer? What was your first volunteer experience and why did you jump in? Um, so I've always been interested in politics. I grew up outside DC in the Virginia suburbs. Uh, it was Ooh, just part where in Virginia, Fairfax. Oh, I grew up in Bethesda. Nice. That's where my mom is from, where all my family lives. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, um, yeah, so I grew up in Fairfax and um, always cared about politics. My family wasn't really into politics, but I had one of my best friend's moms um, worked. She, wrote for, she actually now worked for the EPA and for NASA. She like wrote the Keystone Pipeline report. Oh. Her name was which is, like, interesting. Um, but at the time, she was really involved in uh, narrow pro-choice Virginia stuff. So I remember when I was like in middle school, she took us to a pro-choice Virginia rally um, and a march and we used to do campaign, like canvassing work for them. I knocked doors for um, Cray Deeds for Virginia governor and for Tim Kaine. And mm. I decided to go to college specifically because when I was a junior in high school, I went to a rally for this guy named Barack Obama, who was not even before this was even, this was before even um, <laughs> run for president. He was like trying out his, um, his stump speech at these students for Obama's rallies. And one of them was at the university across the street from my high school. So I skipped a day of school and went, saw him speak, and I was hooked and said, I will do whatever I can one day to eventually work for him. So when it became time to pick a college, I picked Northwestern and fortunately got in because I had a family friend who was at Northwestern working for the Obama campaign. And I figured, great, I'm going to do that in four years because obviously he's going to win and then he's going to run re-election from Chicago and I'm going to get a job. Not realizing that that was like a pretty um, <laughs> ridiculous assumption to have made. Uh, fortunately, it worked out. So I went to Northwestern studying American studies. I wrote my thesis on women running for office against other women and how it changes gender performance in TV ads. And my senior mm. year, I got an internship on the Obama campaign doing online fundraising. So I would take the subway or the L from Evanston down to the Chicago headquarters every day and work, 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 and then go back to school at night. And I'm sort of surprised they gave me a degree because I like, barely went, went to class my <laughs> senior year. Uh, but uh, got the job and it's been all, um, ups and downs and ups and downs since then. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, that's a great story. And let's talk a little bit about run for something. Uh, it's really taken off since you and Ross launched in 2017. And by the way, just, uh, not too long ago, we had Ross on and he's the best. He's awesome. Also interviewed, um, his wife, uh, Jess, in the before times, I think a year ago or something, and she's amazing too. What a, a, a incredible couple! But you you started in 2017. Uh, what were your expectations and goals when you started, and and how has that evolved over the last uh, three years? Well, I'm sure Ross said this too, and uh, we talk about it amongst ourselves all the time. We thought this was going to be small. <laughs> we were like, yeah. "What a cool side hustle this will be!" Um, right, that's, that is what he said. Yeah. He was managing a congressional campaign in Los Angeles. I uh, had just dislocated my knee, was sitting on my couch depressed, had my dog with me, and was like, mm, I'm going to have to get a real job. But in the meantime, this will be a fun hobby. Like every weekend, we'll talk to people who want to run for office. Uh, with the day that we launched on Inauguration Day, uh, over the next week, a 1,000 people signed up. Um, since then, more than 65,000 people have raised their hands to tell us they want to run for office. Wow. And can I tell you my favorite thing about that stat? 
I'm, I'm, I'm so proud of how many people have raised their hands. I'm so proud of the pipeline we're building and of how many people we've elected, which I'll get to in a moment. But my favorite thing about that stat is that nearly 20,000 of them have signed up since March 2020, and more than 2,000 of them have signed up since election day. So when you tell me, like, we are building something that is going to live past the Trump era, it is not about him. It is about people who see problems in their community and see people who look like them and have experiences like them running and winning and thinking, I have to be a part of this. I can do this too. I'm really excited about that. But I'm also really proud that over the last four years, we've helped elect nearly 500 people across 46 states, uh, mostly women, mostly black and brown leaders, 22% LGBTQ, um, to everything from school board and library board, community college board, all the way up to state house, state senate. Uh, and some of them are already running for higher office, which is just wilder than my wildest dreams. If you had asked me what the future would look like in December, January, 2016, 2017. That is so cool to hear. Um, and like you, I love that last part of the stat about the people who have signed up since the election, because I guess this is the big concern for a lot of us doing this work now is that we see all of these people who are tuning in for the first time, who are getting activated, and, uh, and we want to make sure that we keep people engaged. It's so important that we keep building our democracy and have people stepping up. So that is really encouraging. Um, I feel like there's been a lot more light shed over the last four years on the importance of down-ballot races. I know personally, I knew very little about local politics four years ago, and um now a shameless plug. Now I'm running for re-election as a California Democratic Party Assembly delegate. Um, nice. and, and yeah, um, and I <laughs> dove into local politics um, uh, with the California Democratic Party. Republicans, of course, have been investing and in building strong infrastructure uh, for local offices for decades. And we have a big uphill battle against that infrastructure. But I think this last year, we also experienced in a really tangible way how important these offices are with the coronavirus responses and the fight for racial justice, you know, being such locally controlled issues. Um, do you think people are widely paying more attention to down ballot candidates now? I think so. And I think it starts with sort of the people who set the tone, the activists, the operatives, the donors, uh, the media outlets. Um, I think we're getting there. It's There's a lot standing in the way of people understanding how these local governments function in their day-to-day -day lives, the biggest of which is the demise of local media. I mean, we have really seen when you when, when local news outlets um, dissolve or disappear, voter engagement in local elections in those counties drops. Um, there's a direct correlation between having media, account, media to hold the government accountable and voter participation. That being said, I think what you have said is exactly right. The combined pandemic um, plus the protests and Black Lives Matter movement uh, over the last, of course, eight years, but especially over the summer, have really shined a light mm -hmm. on, on how much these offices matter. You know, especially with the federal government completely dropping the ball, you know, who do you turn to to figure out what schools are open? Who are you looking to for direction on whether the playground in your city is open or closed? And if the restaurants are able to survive and the kinds of education your school, your kids are getting. And, you know, when it comes to police accountability, these are municipal and school board and state legislative issues. Mm -hmm. uh, even in the election administration, seeing the, the variation on how this election was administered, 
um, that comes from city and county clerks and county officials, many of whom did the right thing and many more of which went out of their way to make it much harder for people to vote. Um, I think it is one of the, I would not call it a silver lining. There are no silver linings of the Trump era, but it is one of hopefully the positive uh, next steps is that we can really rebuild with a focus on the offices that determine the levers of power and make a difference in people's lives. Um, and those are the ones that don't always make the front page of the New York Times or the Washington Post, but are are exponentially more important than the attention that they get. Yeah. Great point. Let's let's talk a little bit more about that uh, in terms of the the last recent election from a month ago. Uh, <laughs> we had some mixed results on down ballot races. Um, let's talk about the good and the not so good. So like typically as we get into the final stretch of any presidential year campaign, the presidential or the coordinated campaign in the States just takes over all the volunteers and the money, but don't always lift up the local races. And that certainly was the case this cycle. Um, yeah. Is there a better way for local races to work with coordinated campaigns or get attention uh, when all the attention is on a presidential candidate? Um, where where did we fall short where you feel like we could have invested a little bit more time and money? Well, I think part of the, the problem is hoping for the coordinated campaign to do all the work. Um, the reality is, is that the path to win the White House, which is really what drives the coordinated campaign for the most mm -hmm. part, and the path to win everything else, <laughs> don't really overlap. They're not one and the same. And if we count on the coordinated or count on the presidential to do the heavy lifting, to drive the strategy, to bring in the money and the attention and the, the organizing, which I know Swing Left didn't, but many do, um, we're going to miss out on huge opportunities. The, the real... It, and the real problem here is not what did we do in the final six months of the campaign, but what should we have done two or four or 10 years ago to set ourselves up for this? Hmm. Um, when you think in a bigger time horizon, you know the reason that we were able to win Arizona and Georgia, for example, is because of decades of yep. especially organizing led by communities of color and leaders of color on the ground, but of decades of losing. You lose, you lose, you lose, and each time you lose by a little bit less, but you keep working. And then eventually you win. A battleground does not become a battleground overnight. It becomes a battleground through years and cycles of sustained investment. And that's really hard to do for Democrats. And there's, you can get into a whole, it's all separate conversation about why, but that's really hard for Democrats to do. Um, so as I think about what could we have done better, where should we have paid more attention? It's not where should we have paid more attention in 2020, it's where should we have paid more attention in 2008, in 2010. Um, in order to ensure that that the future was a little bit more available to us. Um, I know that this is a whole nother conversation, as you said, but if you could pull out like one big reason why Democrats are bad at doing that, what would that be? Um, I think one of the biggest problems that Democrats have is the, I think we have a, a resource allocation problem. And mm -hmm. I think it stems from the psychology of much of the Democratic major donor community. Uh, and this is kind of a controversial thing to say because I, I, I mean, I raise money from major donors. I, I love the people that give run for something money. Each one is a blessing and I'm so unbearably grateful and unimaginably grateful. And they're a rarity. Um, most run, most major donors in the democratic universe fund vanity projects or are looking for short-term wins or are giving because they're inspired by a news cycle. Um, they're giving because 
they want to be named an ambassador or they want to have to be able to go to a fancy cocktail party in mm-hmm. the before times or they want the f- picture with the candidate. And those are all valid reasons for giving. But if those are your incentive structures, that's not what wins power. And I think we know that because Republicans do it differently. Republicans, you know, the Koch brothers network and their all, sort of all their affiliates give because it's a business investment, because they believe whether rightly or wrongly, mostly right, but rightly or wrongly, mm-hmm. that if Demo- if Republicans win at every level, then it will be good for business. It will be good for big oil. <laughs> it will be good for big corporations. It will be good for billionaires. Yeah. For the most like we joke, like, oh, thank, at least they got their tax cuts. And it's like, yeah, at least they got their tax cuts. And you know, even you think about criminal justice reform with the Koch brothers, part of the reason that the Koch brothers got so invested in criminal justice reform is because a bunch of their employees <laughs> were going to get sued. We're going to get into legal trouble. And they realized that if they could just fix the system, they wouldn't have to pay so much for their employees' legal fights. This isn't a, an altruistic endeavor for them. It's a business investment. And while I don't think that Democrats should take a page out of most Republican playbooks, you know, it has resulted in some very bad behavior. Their donors have it right. If you see past election day, if you see it as a long-term investment in the the health of democracy for Democrats or for business, for Republicans, you will make better strategic decisions. You will You will see past the cost per vote which is a metric that many Democratic donors use um, that ultimately rationalizes underfunding in uh, communities of color and young people because the right. immediate per vote is much higher. But we know that's a long-term better investment because once someone votes once, they're more likely to vote again. Right. Um, if you see past these metrics and you think long-term and you think strategically, you will fund differently. You know, the thing that drives me crazy is this conversation about like, oh, we should do year round organizing. Oh, we should do sustained investment in local work. It's like every single organizer and operative for the most part, and I want to generalize, basically every single organizer and operative would tell you, yes, I would fucking love to do that. Right. But I I can't afford it. I don't. Many of our peers, you know, run for something is really lucky. We are not laying off staff or contracting in any way. Um, and that was an intentional budget decision. But too many state parties and state-based groups and even national organizations are scaling back, which means when they get money again in six months or eight months or in 2022, they're going to have to go through the whole process of hiring up. They're not doing these decisions because it's good strategy. They're doing it because they're resource starved. And that falls to funders. And that especially falls to some of the major funders. I think the people who are giving five and 10 and 20 and you know, 100, 200 bucks, who are giving what they can, who are doing so out of the goodness of their heart, are you keep doing what you're doing. I, I want to say thank you to you if you're listening to this and you should keep funding the things that you care about, um, especially if you can make recurring donations, do so. But for the people for whom political giving is like a hobby, and part of their social network mm. and uh, the same way they treat like targeted philanthropy, you need to make better decisions because in many ways you are setting Democrats up to lose by privileging your ego over strategy. Wow. That, you said a lot that I agree with there. Um, <laughs> everything that I agree with, that was amazing. And uh, yeah, it's so, like so frustrating, you know, uh, these quote unquote off years every you're right every single organizer will say we need to be organizing year round we need to be supporting the local organizers and communities who are just cash strapped building infrastructure in their uh, in their communities and then it's just uh, 
not financially feasible. And I'll, I've been kind of wanting to say this, and I hope my friends who work there don't hear this podcast because I don't want to <laughs> slam them specifically. But you, you t- look at um, what the Lincoln Project raised in this last election. And I'm very proud of the work Swing Left did uh, for local legislatures. I believe we were the second highest fundraisers for local legislatures last cycle. And I'm really proud of that. But the Lincoln Project raised, I don't know what the number is, um, we'll just say a shitload of, uh, of money for these ads that while they were very appealing to us progressives who want to dunk on Trump and his complicit cronies, they weren't really effective in changing hearts and minds and motivating voters. And that money really could have been used on down-ballot races on local legislatures. Um, think about uh, – and, and it was us. It was you know progressives who donated to the Lincoln Project in massive numbers, grassroots, small-dollar donations. But, but be thoughtful about where that money is going and where it's going to be the most effective because down-ballot people is where it is at. I, you know, I, I will take it even one step further. The Lincoln Project raised somewhere north of $80 million this cycle. Right. If you care about building sustainable power for Democrats, a media company that, one, pockets more than it spends and, and was certainly in some way some self-dealing, but two, was especially intended to reach Republican voters, they're not going to vote for Democrats down ballot. Right. Those are Republican voters. And that Chuck Schumer's Senate Majority Pack gave them half a million dollars, amongst many, many others, drives me up the fucking wall. What is the point of doing this if we're not trying to build sustainable power? We are playing into their hands. And like, it's not even just that they raised a whole bunch of money. It's that so many of these state and local candidates who who got money towards the end, got money at the end. It was that they got millions and millions or hundreds of thousands when voters were already voting, when ballots were already out, like it was great. And I I think it's really important to note the financial discrepancy here is not the only reason why some candidates won and some candidates lost. Many of our candidates raised record sums of money. Republicans still outraised us in many places and outspent, but Democratic candidates made incredible leaps forward in raising money and spending this year. But when most of it comes in September, October, it's not that it's too late to spend, but it's in some ways too late, to, too late to spend effectively and efficiently. If we had spent it six months ago or, or a year ago or 18 months ago, and many of these campaigns were getting off the ground, they would have been able to do more. You know, the Emily's List is an acronym. It's early money is like yeast. It helps the dough rise. Mm. Early money begets more money, but also if it gets better campaign strategy, if it gets planning. And anyone who's ever run a business or even thought about running a business knows this. You need to have revenue you can plan on. And campaigns can't do that. It is just, I think it is like sometimes we are why we lose. And that's a real downer. It's a real, it's a real bummer to think of. Well, um, yeah, and that's a great point about early money. There's so much just straight up research and data that shows the importance of early fundraising on campaigns, and uh, and we we try to impress that upon people as well, uh, and uh, sometimes mixed results. Um, we just talked about a bunch of stuff that was wrong or that we could do a better job on. I do mm-hmm. um, I do want to highlight some success stories too. Uh, could you share um, one of your favorite success stories from this recent campaign? Oh, I have so many. Um, 
where to start? Uh, Adrian Tam, who in Hawaii is now the first openly gay member of the Hawaii State Legislature, the only openly gay member of the Hawaii State Legislature, beat out a literal KKK member and like Proud Boys white supremacist. Wow. Flipped a seat. Um, Rebecca Mitchell, a veterinarian in Georgia, who was the first Democrat to run for her seat in literally decades, flipped a seat in the Georgia State Legislature. Um, just today, this is pretty cool, Rayante Bell, Ray, uh, he's a young black man who was running in Berrien County, Michigan for county commissioner, a board of county commissioners. The race originally was tied. They pulled names out of a hat and he lost in that tie breaker pull. Um, just today, when we're recording this, he demanded a recount. And as it turns out, he won by four votes. He's one of the few Democrats to win in Berrien County. He's one of the first black man to represent St. Joe, his city in Michigan. Um, He's in his like mid twenties. It is very cool to see one, every vote matters quite Mm -hmm. obviously. It's really amazing to see what can happen when candidates are willing to to put their names on the ballot. Oh my God, I could, there's so many words. Alex Lee, uh, who became the first Gen Z state legislator in California, as well as the first openly bisexual member of the California State Assembly. Nithya Raman, who's a new LA city council member or incumbent. She took out an incumbent who spout spent her like four or five to one on an upstart grassroots campaign. And beating an incumbent in California is everywhere, but especially in California, especially in LA, uh, is really, really, really hard. Yeah, Nithya's Uh, in my backyard. I have a lot of friends who worked very hard on her campaign too. So that was exciting. Fantastic. Uh, Jeremy Cooney and Samra Brooke both flipped seats in the New York State Senate upstate. Um, they're two, the only two uh, state senators of color from upstate New York, uh, which is so cool to see. I could do this for hours. But like there, <laughs> so we had 287 wins on election day. Um, wow. All across the country. And those are just the ones I can name off the top of my head, but like they are all inspiring and and powerful and going to make such a meaningful difference in their their towns and their states and their cities. And I, I can't wait. Um, watching the swearing in ceremony photos is my favorite part of each like December and January because mm. it's so beautiful to see like the, the sort of circle of, of citizen to candidate to public servant come to fruition. It really, it's very moving. It's a very cool journey to be a part of. So cool. And uh, and I know everyone listening to this is now really fired up and inspired and ready to jump in. How should people interested in running for office get started, Amanda? Great question. Um, if you go to run for what, R-U-N-F-O-R-W-H-A-T dot net, you can enter your name, your address, your information, and you'll see all the offices available to you in 2021. You'll then get an email inviting you to a conference call. Join that conference call and we'll talk through all of the ways in which you can run for office, whether in 2021, 2022, or much, much later. You should also certainly get the book if you're interested in reading. The podcast, I think, is really fun. We're talking to alumni and our candidates all across the country. Um, Their stories are really inspiring. But the most important thing you can do is sign up on the website. Love that. We'll have a link to that also on our podcast page, swingleft.org slash podcast. One last question before I let you go. What gives you the most hope for our future? The candidates we work with, far and away, being able to see a 25-year-old who's still living with his parents and working part-time as like a, a food delivery guy, 
run a campaign for California State Assembly and win and show up committed to fighting for renters and for people like him who are still living in their parents' homes. Um, like what a difference that will make in the conversation around things like affordable housing and how we trig, mm. you know, the, the, how we treat the gig economy. And when I look at people like um, Anna Eskamani in Florida and Brianna Titone in Colorado, um, who are both single-handedly helping tens of thousands of their constituents and other folks in their states in Florida and Colorado, respectively, navigate a broken unemployment system. Like they're doing it even though it's hard. There is hope because our government is starting to be filled with good people who have lived experiences, who come from uh, non-traditional backgrounds, who are willing to change their lives to change the world. And I, I cannot be more excited to, to be a part of that work with them. Well said. Amanda Lippman, thank you so much. No problem. Thank you for having me. I really do appreciate it. And thanks for having the rest of the Run for Something uh, extended Morales Riquetto family, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, the honor is all ours. You've got a great, great family there. <laughs> Thank you for joining us and for stepping up to take action. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved. We would love to hear from you. Tweet to us at BluesBoySteve and at Mariah underscore Craven or email us at podcast at swingleft.org. And if you haven't yet, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on Apple or wherever you're listening to it. Share us on social media. Check out our page at swingleft.org slash podcast. And of course, sign up to volunteer in Georgia. That's right. We really appreciate you being here. We will be back with some more next Wednesday. See you then. Bye.